Welcome to a place where we combine equal parts science, technology, design, and entrepreneurship. Then we gradually stir in magic to the mixture, and you have the Perception Podcast. Join us in conversations with design heroes, inspirational thinkers, business leaders, and trailblazers across the globe. Our special guest today on the Perception Podcast is Charlie Fink. Charlie is an ARVR consultant, columnist, speaker, and author of the recently released book, Charlie Fink's Metaverse, an AR-enhanced guide to AR and VR. Charlie is a former Disney, AOL, and AG Interactive executive who writes about VR, AR, AI, and new media for Forbes. While at Disney, he famously came up with the idea for The Lion King. In addition to his work as head of story development during the second golden age of Disney animation, Fink was SVP and CCO of AOL Studios. EVP and COO of VR Pioneer Virtual World Entertainment and President and CCO of American Greetings Interactive. He has founded and exited two venture-backed startups and has produced over 30 award-winning Broadway musicals. He is also a contributing editor of Virtual Reality Pop, a medium publication for whom he writes a popular weekly column while he consults and speaks on these topics at conferences like CES, South by Southwest, AWE, ARIA, VR Toronto, VR LA, and many more. So let your imagination run wild, and let's jump into the metaverse with Charlie Fink. Welcome, Charlie Fink, to the Perception Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Danny. I read the book, loved it, thought it was interesting, but I had a couple of questions based off of interviews I've seen with you and, of course, uh, from the book. Sure. Um, You thank your wife, who uh, patiently lived through at least four reinventions. Can you... uh, Tell us a little bit more about your background and those reinventions. <laughs> sure. Well, I started out as a, a filmmaker and as a movie executive. I worked for Walt Disney from 1986 until 1992 when I ran a Disney-funded startup doing location-based virtual reality. In those days, we used a uh, simulator system that was essentially pod based virtual reality or vehicle-based VR. You were sitting inside of a simulator and out the windshield of the simulator, you could see your friends piloting other vehicles. And I left Disney. So uh, I pivoted from Disney to tech at that moment, although we viewed that company very much as as an entertainment company. But in uh, the end of 1995, I became an executive at AOL and effectively shifted from VR, which before the internet we thought was the future of computing and the future of entertainment. And while it still may be, it was interrupted by this little thing called the internet. And I like to say I got paid um, by AOL for what I did at Disney. Um, Everybody working at AOL in the 90s became very wealthy. So I wanted to get back into show business, so I started getting involved with uh, producing theater and working on Broadway shows, and I did that for over 10 years. I was involved with various startups over that time and and got experience with things like social media marketing, but I was primarily focused on theater, and I woke up one day in 2015 and thought, gosh, this is a really crappy job. All you do is raise money, fight about money, and try and convince people to come to the theater, which is something they generally never do. And uh, as I say in my tech book, uh, 
for tech to be successful, it has to take what people are already doing and might make it much better, the way Amazon has changed shopping, for example. So there was no way to do that with theater. So I had um, rediscovered all the old problems of media uh, through theater, and so I pivoted back to tech. I'm having much more fun. I'm much more relevant. Uh, the theater business is ridiculously difficult, and you know I wasn't great at it to be honest, and you hate waking up in the morning and not doing something you're great at. So I guess you would call this my fourth transformation, if you will, except in this incarnation, I'm not coming back as an executive or as um, a producer. I'm, I'm coming at it as a an author and as a thought leader. Disney is, uh, is quite the breeding ground for technology. I mean, uh, I don't think many people realize how much of a tech visionary Walt Disney was. He was uh, the inspiration for Howard Stark in the, uh, in the Iron Man films. <laughs> did, did we read that you, uh, you actually came up with the idea for Lion King? Yeah, well, you're, you're, you're uh, bringing up two very interesting topics. Of course, everybody loves the Lion King story. I actually recently wrote about it in my column in Forbes. I pitched my boss, Bambi in Africa, right? Because you know how Bambi begins with the great stag overlooking the forest and the thicket where his son is born. And in the last shot of the movie, we see the great stag overlooking the forest. But now Bambi, fully grown, steps up next to his father. And below them, in the thicket in the forest, Bambi's son is being born. And at that moment, the great stag steps off of the rock and leaves Bambi there having fully replaced him as the king of the forest. So my idea was simply let's do, you know, Bambi in Africa, the Lion King, you know, his son is being born of the Serengeti. There are lovable sidekick characters, you know, like meerkats and warthogs and baboons. And, you know, we play African music. And my boss said, if you can figure out why Bambi eats the other animals, that might just be a picture. <laughs> And so after that, you know, some minor talents like Tim Rice came in and, uh, and, and, you know, we made the movie, but, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of artists work, worked on it and created, created the magnificent uh, work of art that it is. Uh, but that, it started with that little kernel and I was happy to say I was there. The other thing you brought up about Walt Disney, I actually think Disneyland, I will posit to you that Disneyland is virtual reality. Walt had an epiphany. He realized that people wanted to be inside the world of his movie with the characters that they loved. And he used the technology that he had to try and create that. And I'm certain that if Walt were alive today, he would be trying to use virtual reality to bring that about. It's obviously much easier. And you could add lots and lots of magic which was obviously he tried to do again using whatever technology he could think of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know in your in your book you mentioned, you know, like HTC creating these uh, VR cades and, and, and building these immersive environments for people to come to. And that's essentially what you're saying. I mean, that's what yeah. Walt did back in the day, except, you know, it was people in costumes and all that, that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yep. It's great. Um, the first thing I notice in the book, and I'm sure you get this a lot, is that uh, notice this book is out of date, Paige. So, yeah, uh, people love that. And, I mean, any book about technology really is out of date the day it's published. Yep. Yeah, and I'm, I'm one of those folks that, you know, as soon as I go to the Apple store to get my new phone or laptop, you know, the next one's announced an hour later. 
Yeah, yeah. the timing is impeccable. But, when but it comes in to my the case of, of XR in particular, uh, we're, we're at a, a moment where, you know, it keeps growing exponentially and, and the leaps are getting larger and larger and faster and faster. So while I don't think that we're going to be walking around wearing augmented reality glasses next year or even the year after, um, clearly we are headed toward a world of wearable, invisible, contextual computing. Mm-hmm. And that we're at the very beginning of that. Well, since you, since you say that you know, the book is uh, uh, out of date, I know it's, it's, it's funny, of course, um, and it's not that old. But are there some certain things that you know that you know now that you didn't know when you wrote the book well, that sure, you'd like? Let's, let's take the biggest thing, and and you know, Magic Leap has released its creators edition. Mm-hmm. When the book was published, you know, they had just announced that they were going to sometime in 2018. Mm-hmm. So we know a lot about that now. Uh, what I have found, I thought actually this time uh, last year that by now I would be be gearing up to do a new edition of the book. And I realized that, and certainly the greatest sins of, it's funny because the book is not so much out of date as it's incomplete. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it becomes kind of a snapshot in time and you could keep updating it, but uh, you almost need to have a different way of organizing it as it evolves. So for that reason, I'm writing a second book, which will be out in March. It will also be an AR-enabled book, but it will address what I think are um, some of the uh, some of the omissions of the first book. And it's called "The World Will Be Painted with Data: A Deep Dive into the Many Modes of Augmented Reality." Mm-hmm. Wow, sounds fascinating. Sounds like uh, it's definitely a work in progress, and uh, you probably will never be done writing these books. Well, I think that that's that's a very good point because this book, like the first one will also be out of date the day it's published. <laughs> where, where do you think uh, AR will have the biggest impact or disruption in the future? Uh, define, can you give me some more definition? Where is it going to have the biggest impact? Why don't we say biggest impact in the next three years and then I can go. Sure, let's start there. So in the next three years, well, first of all, augmented reality is kind of an inside baseball word that we're all using. But ultimately, to the consumer, it just means better Google Maps, mm-hmm. right? So it's going to slowly sink in, seep into all of the apps we use on our phone, and the camera will become increasingly important to your smartphone in terms of it carrying computer vision that can read the world and find a hidden digital layer. So that hidden digital layer could be the director of the building, the menu in a restaurant, you know, pictures of food that your friend took in that restaurant two years ago. Mm-hmm. And so that will be detectable by your phone, by an app in your phone, which is using the camera as the interface, the camera as the window mm-hmm. into a digitally enhanced world. So that's, that's what's going to happen with our, our smartphones and smartphone screens are getting bigger and bendable and faster and you know 5g is coming so you know we're going to see this blending of, of real and, and digital um, becoming uh, more and more commonplace and again probably through the apps we use every day like facebook and google 
Mm -hmm. So people will slowly get used to this idea of ambient data and what AR can do and, um, you know, this idea of persistent geolocation of data and, and ultimately this, this idea of, of filters, right? So when the world is painted with data, you don't want all that data. You just want the data that's relevant to you right then. So in the short term, that'll happen not because of AI, but because you open an app in your phone or you open your camera. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's the near term, right? It doesn't have to do anything with AR glasses, magically HoloLens, all that cool stuff. Uh, it will be a sideshow for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, and when I say the foreseeable future, I mean the next few years. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, now when we talk, uh, you know, 10 years out, uh, I think we're going to have interoperable AR and VR devices on our desks, and it'll be commonplace for us to do some of our computing um, in an immersive environment. And from an augmented reality standpoint, uh, you're going to see uh, the desktop start to expand. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, you know, websites are going to have uh, 3D data embedded in them that, that you would have to look at through a device. Or you might have a special computer. There is a computer screen made by a company called Zspace uh, where you just wear certain kinds of polarizing glasses and you can have 3D on your desktop. So we may be seeing volumetric movies uh, in our homes that we watch with glasses that are way better and way smarter than the old 3D glasses mm -hmm. um, and and you can uh, you'll see the three-dimensional images on the screen from any angle in the room right so so if, if it were a you know a 3D spaceship you could walk around it mm -hmm. so I think we're gonna see that kind of entertainment and by the way volumetric sports is gonna be epic and and you will need something you know, to wear something to see that, right? It needs a projection surface or, or it needs to project into the lenses of glasses. So I think that starts to be the, the beginning of computer consumer head-mounted displays. Uh, you know, we're talking about 10 years out, it'll just be volumetric. You'll be so used to volumetric content, you'll, you'll want more ergonomic and easy ways to interact with it. Mm -hmm. So that'll naturally usher in that era. but. It'll be 10 years at least before you see people really walking around wearing augmented reality or, you know, mostly you'll take it on and off for head, whatever head-mounted interim devices there are. You'll, you'll take them on and off like you would a VR headset. Um, it's, it's probably not something people are going to wear around all the time, but certainly in the same way we see people, you know, nodding away on the subway listening to their AirPods. Uh, we will certainly see people uh, wearing some kind of augmented reality display, uh, watching a movie or doing other crazy things, sitting there on the subway like uh, with a faraway look on their face. Mm -hmm. So that is the world 10 years from now. But, uh, you know, again, it's another step on the path, right? The augmentation of man does not end with a head-mounted display. If, by the way, a head-mounted display is the final form factor, um, which it, it, it could be wearable, some combination of wearable, not necessarily glasses. Mm -hmm. You will underplay the significance of sound and a, you know, uh, intelligence assistance. And you think, what can an intelligence assistant 
do you combine with computer vision uh, and the input being oral in your ears rather than in your eyes? So I think that that the competition of sound uh, and uh, digital images has not totally played itself out yet, but I wouldn't count sound out. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. It's a lot easier, it's a lot faster, it can be way more ergonomical than reading things on the inside of your glasses. So I don't think this has been decided yet. And there are a lot of, everybody's operating on a hypothesis. Nobody really knows what the consumer ultimately will, will do. Right. Well, I think it all comes down to, you know, what, going back to Disney and, and you know, building this world and what are, the, what are those senses that everybody wants to, you know, have uh, enlightened, so to speak, augmented. or augmented, exactly. Um, you mentioned, you know, the Augmented Man, I think it's chapter three in your book. As soon as I saw the title, I immediately went to my favorite childhood show, Six Million Dollar Man. Oh, I'm probably yeah, dating, dating right. myself, but uh, yeah. um, you we can make that- him better. We can build him better than That's he right. was. Exactly, exactly. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, the best actor in the world, Lee Majors, <laughs> back <laughs> yeah. then. Um, he, he felt it. Yep. But uh, you, you you mentioned also in the book that uh, you know. Uh, man will be augmented and will merge with machine. You know, you brought up the Neuralink Corp and Elon Musk. Uh-huh. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that that future with uh, how humans will be augmented. Well, as I said, there are a couple ways that can happen. You know, possibly this idea of contact lenses, although it's very primitive right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you you might be able to get some kind of um, brain-readable contact lenses. Um, We actually worked on... Sorry? Sorry to interrupt, but we actually worked on something for... uh, I can't name the company, but we'll we'll call it a defense company. And it was an exoskeleton, so the the person can actually lift more than... Yeah, I've been seeing seeing stuff about that on social media. Yeah, it was kind of like the real Iron Man. But that is... Right, that is augmentation. Mm -hmm. Right there, for example... um, uh, out of MIT, they've come out with a, a patch, which is a, a temporary tattoo mm-hmm. um, that changes color to indicate your blood sugar level. Mm-hmm. So that's bio-augmentation. It measures your temperature and all those things. Right. So these kinds of augmentations will become more and more commonplace. Right. So, the, I mean, I look at augmentation as a very broad idea um, and not specific to glasses because I think that that is a hang-up. Um you know, it's not really uh, about the the glasses. It's about the form factor that that makes them the most usable and the least intrusive. Yeah, and, and by the way, I mean for for an all day wearable, you'd, they'd have to be just like your regular glasses, right? So we are, you know, that's technology that hasn't been invented yet. But will it be invented? Yes, almost certainly. Almost certainly. And will it be? And it will be soon, because there are a lot of people working on this problem. But what it means for the consumer uh, is as yet unknown. I know what it means for enterprise, right? It means better, faster, smarter workers, and and therefore um, better and, and potentially less expensive products. Mm-hmm. When, when Danny also, mentioned the uh, the six million dollar man, it, uh, it it brings up a very common theme in perception and, and indeed uh, you know the world, and that is science fiction always inspiring science fact. And 
what we what we grew up watching in the '70s is now coming to fruition. And yeah. yeah, it's just never exactly in the way we think, right? Exactly. Like you know, we don't have flying cars, but we had no idea about the internet. That's right. And given a choice between the two, I would totally take the internet. <laughs> really, in science fiction movies in the past thirty years, we've seen some great. Uh, examples of what augmented reality and artificial intelligence might look like. Of course, it's not going to look anything like that, but the ideas in it, the ideas in the, you know, TV series like Altered Carbon or Blade Runner, you know, talking about um, advertisements that are, you know, world-size holograms that know you. Mm -hmm. uh, these are, are big and powerful ideas that will manifest some form of it will certainly be manifest so you know i mean look at the the neil stevenson books from the early 90s uh, snow crash i think was written in the 80s mm -hmm. oh, and he's imagining the world of the internet and, and what that could potentially do to the economy and you know he predicted the gig economy among other things so uh, it, it kind of follows one thing after another. Mm. It, if you are a big enough visionary to, to you know, put them, not only put them, per, perceive them and connect them, but also articulate them, so, uh, which are all, all require a lot of different talents. So uh, some people like Stevenson are gifted and they have that and he's infected or influenced or passed this virus along to you know, millions of engineers. Some of whom end up in a, in a position with new technology to start to um, think about those ideas in more concrete terms. So, yeah, I mean, I think art and literature, in particular movies today, you know, influences scientists very directly. Yeah, I mean, that's at the heart of what we do here at Perception. You know, we work on uh, a lot of the Marvel films, creating all the different technologies for the superheroes and the, and the MCU. Um, but on the technology side, you know, all these global technology uh, companies call us up and say, hey, can you help us make our stuff look as cool as Tony Stark's or S.H.I.E.L.D. or right. whoever it is that right. we've done. So um, it's very interesting, um, you know, where, where, it's, where it's been when we were growing up as far as Six Million Dollar Man. And um, another one of my favorites was, you know, The Incredible Hulk that has nothing to do with technology, but it was just a great <laughs> show. But, you know, V was a good one, things like that, and then, uh, and then the way it still influences each other now, but now it feels like it's more uh, intertwined with each other, a lot more than, than in the past. Well, um, sure, I mean, look, you know, Disney bought, um, Disney bought Lucasfilm, and, you yeah. know, they transformed it into, you know, even an even bigger thing than it is, you know, they're making a Star Wars hotel, and they're, mm -hmm. you know, turning it into this franchise that is a much bigger and more diverse uh, meta value uh, than any single title will ever have, but it is just crazy the way you know movie studios today. They only make a few; they make very few movies, mm -hmm. and they're almost inevitably um, major brands. Well, although I will say, I mean, look at Ready Player One made four hundred billion dollars in China, so wow, it yep. only made three million in the U.S. In the U.S. by in all in the old world in the U.S. it would have been considered a failure, but because it did so hugely well in Asia, it's it, it is a giant hit. And, and and in the old days, of course, it would take you years to collect the ancillary money from Asia. But today, it was released at the same time it was in the United States, and they got their money right away. Mm -hmm. So there's a 
a big beneficiary of globalization is movie companies. Yeah, it, it, uh, you know, Ready Player One. It was um, it, it was okay. It wasn't my fa- one of my favorite films. You know, I love the pop culture and everything that's involved, and the and the, the story was was great. It just um, I don't know. Yeah, it ain't the Godfather, but as as a kind of pulpy science fiction movie goes, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, it's just uh, you're not going to make the Godfather out of Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a Steven Spielberg movie, so yeah. Steven Spielberg has, you know, got a particular touch. Mm-hmm. So I, I like Steven Spielberg movies, especially when they're good ones, and I think this falls into the good category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, one of the one of the he's made uh, some he's made some bloggers, inf- but this was not one of them. One of the most influential films he made recently uh, in the last uh, you know decade or so was uh, Minority Report. Report. Yeah, and that's been a huge. Uh, influence on the work we do a lot of clients come here saying we want something like minority report well right but here's here's the fun of minority report and frankly also of the um r2d2 uh, holographic projection scene in star wars in both cases uh, those scenes are impossible regardless of the technology uh, one for two reasons the other for just one reason in the case of minority report the only way he could be seeing things and moving them around like that would be um, if he had an ocular implant. Mm-hmm. The, the other way you could do it, because he's not wearing glasses, right? Mm-hmm. The way you could do it is if there is some kind of an invisible trend, uh, 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 projection surface. Mm-hmm. Right? Invisible projection surface, it could be interactive and he could move the sand around on it. But otherwise, it's impossible to see things floating in the air sure. without an implant or, or a lens or a screen or something to project it onto. The other scene, the R2-D2 scene, um, first of all, uh, when Princess Leia sticks the memory stick or whatever into R2-D2 and gives R2-D2 the message for Obi-Wan, um, it is not shot from R2-D2's point of view. Both uh, Princess Leia and R2-D2 are in a um, three-quarter uh, wide shot that had to be taken from some camera that we don't know mm-hmm. and, and implanted in R2-D2. Yep. And then he's exactly that. So that, that's the first impossible thing. Where yep. was that camera? Yeah. The yeah, second we, possible oh. thing is when R2-D2 projects it, where's the projection surface? I mean, that could work, I guess, if there was some kind of mist. And in fact, it's kind of broken up, like maybe he puffed some smoke or something, and that's what it's, the image is floating in. But that's the only way it could work, right? Because there's no projection surface. Right. So anyway, debunking two of my favorite scenes. Love it. <laughs> no, it's great. We have a log of uh, of films like that that we we keep here. Of like, hey, this isn't doesn't feel right. Um, you know, for all, a lot of the science fiction films, and just some of our favorites, like uh, like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger Commando. He uh, he does a car chase scene, and he's chasing somebody in an old Porsche, and the car flips over, and then when Arnold actually flips it back over onto its wheels and drives away, it's in perfect condition, even though the car was just destroyed. <laughs> you know, little things like that that uh, that just make uh, make you laugh when you look back at these films. See, that's the great thing about Ready Player One. You can do that, and it's fine. It's believable because it isn't a real thing. Right. Yep. Totally. 
Well, you, you know, that's a good point you bring up uh, with the movies and how a lot of these movies now, their stories are extended into some sort of VR because, you know, it's easy for uh, viewers to be familiar, you know, they're familiar with the content. Yeah. Sure. So how do you see it expanding? Do you see it more in public or, or more at home? Is it a public experience or is it something that, you know? Well, there, there's a couple of cuts at that, but, but you'll always get something better in public than you will get at mm -hmm. the home. Yeah. Generally, uh, you know, not always, because a lot of uh, a lot of the arcades operate more like internet cafes, right? People can't afford the high end equipment, so they rent it by the hour. Uh, right in the old days, people didn't have personal computers, they didn't have internet connections, so they paid, you know, pay as you go, so to speak, ten dollars here, twenty dollars there, but they don't have the expense of owning a computer. Uh, so VR works that way on one level. There's the, the Lowly arcade, but increasingly in, in public spaces, we're seeing uh, the public VR being available to the public both for trial and also for more experienced users who find it more convenient setting up VR in their homes. Mm -hmm. Especially if you live in a New York apartment, setting up a room scale Vive is not within everybody's reach. Right. So. Um, so yes, I think, and then, then of course there's the free roam experiences which are proliferating. Free roam VR uh, or location-based free roam VR, uh, you know, has you putting on a backpack PC and head-mounted display, and seeing a and being inside a completely virtual world, but with full agency and locomotion. So no teleporting around. You actually are walking around. You're seeing other people, um, and and the. Uh, Virtual world is, is mapping onto your own, so to speak. So the world is fully occluded. You're in a new world. Mm -hmm. New sky, new floor, new everything. You are there. So that's something you can't do at home right now. Uh, you know, because you would need, you know, some kind of a motion platform and, and all this other stuff. Um, you know, that's what Wade, what, what Wade uh, Watts had in Ready Player One. Mm -hmm. He had that cheap little setup that he had hidden in his van yep. that had the treadmill yep. so that he could uh, walk around in, in VR. So you, you can do that now in public places. Uh, you, you can't do that in the home, and it probably will be quite some time before you can. Yep. And then he got upgraded to that uh, the super suit, the full right. sensory haptic suit or something like that. I forget the actual yeah, name still, of it. But he still needed his, um, his treadmill. Yep. Yep. What countries do you think have the upper hand in AR right now? Uh, in AR, I would say it probably continues to be the United States, but in VR, I think it's China. Mm. I mean, China has an advantage over the United States in technology that is growing rapidly because they have the they have some of the aspects of a centralized economy are beneficial. So the government can say, we want everybody to be a computer engineer. And so you retool your entire educational system around turning out computer engineers, which by the way comes from identifying the kids who have the aptitude by the time they're 10 and then specializing their education. And you know this resulted last year in China graduating four times as many uh, science, technology, and engineering graduates as the West, including Europe, put together. Mm. So now, 
you know, they've said they want to have an army of programmers bigger than the people's army, which is six million. So I, I think that's the way you get there, right? You start with kids when they're 10 years old. They can do that. The U.S. can't do that. The U.S. has no ability to do long-range planning. In fact, the entire U.S. Constitution is designed to defeat that. Mm -hmm. So only corporations and then, you know, um, and then it's done, of course, hyper-locally, right? Uh, your local school district can decide to do that. The community can decide to do that. But it isn't something that's that's undertaken on the scale that it's undertaken in China. So I think I think probably the 21st century will end up being the Chinese century for that reason. Uh, the other thing about the United States is, of course, you know, there's a famous saying that historians use, uh, which is great civilizations are not murdered. They commit suicide. So, you know, I think China is, has got some advantages in long-range planning, and I think we're very, at the moment, very uh, interested in killing ourselves and each other. And, right. you know, all you, you don't need to look farther than Las Vegas to draw your own conclusions about that. So, uh, you know, just that sort of thing does not go on in China. Now, they're less free. It is true. They're less free. But they're also less free to be uneducated. They're less free to kill each other. So maybe our kind of freedom is not so superior to theirs and I think that that's um, another reason that that um, you know China may end up being an example to the world which America used to be hmm. interesting um, you know we just to go back to earlier on the on the on the call um, you mentioned you know how in AR, you'd be walking down the street, or you go into a restaurant to be a picture from, you know, from a, a buddy who ate there, you know, a year ago, things like that. You know, right now, there's so many different apps on my phone to do, you know, several different things. Right. right. And you made mention of a universal browser. Uh, yes, you know, I, was, I, I saw that's where you were going with that, right? Mm -hmm. Because, I, I mean, right now, we are all being crushed under the jackboot of the app. The tyranny of the app is ruining mobile computing. It's, it's, it's a horrible form factor. I mean, it, mobile computing should be like the internet, right? You should go to a web page and get what you want. Yep. Right, right now you're interrupted and several steps are required. Certainly you're not gonna be checking Facebook, Twitter, you know, and, and you know, whatever other Snapchat, whatever social networks you use to see if there's geolocated content for you from your social network in each of those apps. That would be insane. No one would do that. Um, or, or I should say no one I know would do that. Uh, what would be better is if there were uh, a standard universal visual browser that accessed all of those other apps. And you would be the one making that choice. You would customize your universal visual browser. So you would say, detect messages from people in my Facebook feed but not people in my Twitter feed, mm -hmm. right? So, so when you hold your camera up and you're scanning a location or looking at a map to see where content that you want may be located, the way you would look for a Pokemon, for example, um, you have filtered out the information that you don't want. Mm -hmm. Well, you bring up a good point. So, if if, uh, if I'm doing, I'm looking through this visual browser or universal browser, sorry, um, and I say, you know, give me. Give me friends from my Facebook, but not my Twitter feed. Um, does that mean that the the kind of the the business model for a Facebook 
in the future uh, is more they're seeking for our approval to be part of their service instead of us well, cre that, creating a user and becoming exactly part. the way I envision it. What, what I mean is, you know, just think of the universal browser as something that's sitting there waiting for you to tell it what to see. Right, right. Okay. So if you tell it to see things that people in my social graph have posted, right, for you, get out of the newsfeed. The newsfeed is gone. Mm -hmm. You're looking at your uh, at, at a map or, or through the browser and you have told it I only want to see content from people in my social graph and or, for, or in my Facebook feed or you know and there's no Facebook feed it's just I took a picture of food and if you didn't happen to see it at 7 p.m. on Wednesday then you're never going to see it right unless somehow you went through my photo library mm -hmm. right it's only exists for a very short minute and then it disappears into the infinity of the newsfeed. Mm -hmm. If you, um, but but let's think about ways the newsfeed doesn't matter anymore because I'm in a restaurant, I take a picture of food, and the meal is so good that I geolocate that picture in the restaurant with a caption that said, you know, get the you know spaghetti vongole. Jane and I loved it, and here is the picture. Now that picture is just going to sit there until you walk in, my friend two years later into the same restaurant and you look at your phone and it says, Oh, there are 12 posts here from people in your social graph. Perfect. Let me see what they liked. Mm -hmm. Right. Or maybe your friends leave reviews outside the restaurant. So you point your camera at the restaurant and you'll see five notes from people that, you know, who left messages from people in their social graph. Oh, this place is great. Great value. Get the chicken. Now, there will also be undoubtedly advertising from Facebook. So if you're choosing to get, you know, content from them, which is costing them money, you're going to have to eat some kind of advertising mm -hmm. because that's how Facebook makes money. So, Charlie, what uh, what advice would you give to uh, younger generations who are interested in getting involved in tech as far as uh, education um, and just general advice for, uh, for starting well, a career path? For me, of course, I am planting seeds for a tree under whose shade I shall never sit. But young people uh, are going to have some amazing opportunities because this is a disruption that is way larger than the smartphone and perhaps can even eventually rival the impactfulness of the internet. So, you know, imagine if the whole real world was clickable, what that would mean. So. I think the number of, of jobs that's going to be created in the industry are tremendous, not just for engineers and scientists, but you know, also for artists and creative people and filmmakers and everyone is going to be using this technology because it is it expands our ability to communicate into three dimensions. So are you going to be speaking at any events or conferences in the near future that our listeners could uh Check you out uh, at? Yes. I'm going to be at, uh, let me bring up my calendar here since I can't even remember at this point. I just say yes to all these things, really. Uh, so I am going to be at um, VA, uh, uh, I'm sorry, New York VR. Um, which is, uh, I believe, the um, 
the 12th. Yep. I'm speaking at NYVR on the 12th of October. Uh, I'm speaking at AWE Munich on the uh, 19th of October. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I'm speaking at the New York Food Festival on the 12th. I'm on a panel. On the 26th is New York VR. Okay. Um, then, uh, then I am uh, speaking at something called CTNX, Cartoon Network Expo, mm-hmm. uh, on the 16th and the 17th. I'll be giving a keynote there. Great. And that is probably there's a lot of other kind of private events and stuff that you know people that won't be podcast and people won't be able to find them right but right those those should probably be up there and of course if you google my name there's and on youtube um and you generally should there's another charlie fink who's a famous rock musician guy mm-hmm. so when you google me you should always do charlie fink vr or xr or something like that so that you don't get all the uh, the content for the rock musician guy, <laughs> right. uh, but there are a lot of videos of me speaking, and and you know of course for the past year I've been talking about my book, so they're all substantially similar, but recent ones are more recent and um, you know more accurate mm-hmm. in some things that I talk about. And because how can I've how, learned things since the last presentation? Right, uh, and how can people uh, connect with you and follow you on social? Uh, well, I'm at Charlie Fink on Twitter. You can also go to my website, charliefink.com, and follow the links to LinkedIn and, and other social platforms. On, I'm most active on Twitter. I post about VR and, and AR and XR pretty much all day long. So I, I find it an incredibly great way to stay connected with friends and, and to have a community of people who are interested in similar topics. Mm-hmm. I'd, I'd strip all the political and personal stuff out of my Twitter feed. I know other people. I can see from what they post that they're they've got a lot of political stuff, and and I do that on Facebook. But I really try and keep Twitter and LinkedIn just for business. And you know, I don't know, I don't post dirty jokes. I mean, it's just all XR all the time. Right. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Charlie. This yeah. has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, really this is awesome. Great. Thanks, guys. Send me a link when it's up. I, I appreciate you reaching out to me. It was very flattering, and I enjoyed our chat. Yep. Thank you again. Take okay. care. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. And that wraps up another episode of the Perception Podcast. As always, send any questions and comments to ask at experienceperception.com. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. Sign up for our weekly newsletter on our site, experienceperception.com slash contact. Lastly, if you enjoyed this podcast, please go to iTunes and write a nice review. See you on the next episode.